This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. So this is Mary Rose Chris Kelly. Uh, I'm here talking with Sam Elliott on the Right Way Podcast about the cane. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction there, Mary Rose Cus Kelly. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott, person whom you just heard introduced in this episode of the Right Way Podcast program. For tonight was none other than tonight's guest, Mary Rose Cuskelly. Mary Rose and I discussed her book, The Cane. Cane uh, the titular cane uh, is large swathes of it surround the town in which the book is set in far north Queensland in the early 70s. Uh, Koala, uh, I believe it's how it's pronounced, Koala, is a yeah north Queensland sugar town, 1970s. Serves as the setting for a disappearance of one of its uh, 16-year-old female denizens uh, of the town, Janet McClaymont. Uh, McClaymont, I believe that's how it's pronounced properly. Uh, and yes, this sets forth a, a complete uh, reaction within the community. Originally, it starts off as one of sort of solidarity with everyone from the township pitching in to try and do their part for the searching efforts to try and find uh, or find out what's become of Janet. And then the longer that uh, Janet does not turn up, the more the community kind of turns its gaze inward uh, and starts to ponder if one of its own could be responsible for a deplorable crime in the form of doing something horrible to Janet, uh, thus launching all sorts of questions about the nature of community, the people that we believe that we live with and trust, uh, and how they could be responsible for monstrous crimes, as well as also sort of um, how a unifying or uh, a front of solidarity can then also lead to uh, sort of isolating or ostracizing certain members of the community for the most trivial of differences or perceived differences and then the, all the sort of uh, problems that can arise from that uh, that singling out or uh, rendering several members or singular members of the community into outcasts based upon these perceived sort of differences as well. So it uh, kind of uh, it's it balances both a broad sort of spectrum of uh, what happens to a community when a person, young person disappears and sort of uh, mysterious and tragic circumstances as well as then kind of goes on the more sort of uh, narrow macro level of uh, various different sort of characters and their prolonged reactions to the not knowing, uh, the sort of uh, delayed grief that can arise from that, uh, be it familial or that of friends or sort of people within the broader community as well. So as all kind of frame within the sort of uh, fast-paced investigation of the cane. So yeah, I think that's uh, going to be my summary, but far better for me to continue to delve into into the nitty-gritties of the novel without speaking to the person who wrote it. So if everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to Mary Rose Cuskelly talking to me about her book, The Cane. Mary Rose, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast tonight. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you about the cane. I'm so happy to be here with you. I mean, I've already just admired your, your setup there. That's just so much, so much better, so much better than, than my own kind of setup. But um, let's get into the nitty gritty of it. I want to know where the basis for the idea for the cane actually stemmed from, because you mentioned in the acknowledgements that there were several high profile kind of cases of abductions and murders that sort of took place. I believe one of the main ones that stood out was a Mackay school girl, Marilyn Wallman, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I wanted to yeah. know if that's where it originally kind of started from and where it kind of expanded into the cane. Yeah. Look, um, Marilyn Wallman's disappearance was a really big event mm. in Queensland in the early seventies. And I was younger than her when she disappeared. She was 14 and she was on her way to school and she was riding her bike down the track between these two cane fields and the cane was quite high. Like it was, the harvest was a quite, was a few months off the main road and she would catch the bus into Mackay to go to school. And her younger brothers went to the local primary school and they came down that same track about 10 minutes after she did. And they found her bike lying on its side the front wheel still spinning and Marilyn was gone. And the older boy, he was only about 11 at the time, he ran back to get their mother from the house and the younger boy, who was nine, stayed by the, by the bike. And while he was there, he heard his sister crying out from the cane fields. And all those details were reported 
at the time. And I don't have a memory of hearing those details then, mm. but I just know that something, I mean, I grew up in Queensland, not in Mackay. I grew, to, grew up in the southeast corner of the state, but it was such was the event and such was the reach that it had that I just, that um, anxiety that it caused in parents all across the state and probably all across the country was just something that kind of seeped into my pores, I think. And so it was just one of those. And because two years earlier, there'd been another terrible crime in Townsville, so a bit further north, where two little girls were waiting at a bus stop to go to school and they were taken and their bodies were found a couple of days later in a riverbed. And, um, and so, and these, and over the years, anyway, so, so these were, these were um, events that I remember, you know, talking about in the, in the schoolyard and things like that. And it was very, and even though my parents kind of tried to, you know, the television set would go off or the radio would go off when details of them were discussed, it was still something that, you know, kids would take snatches of and bring them to school and we'd, mm. you know, all talk about it. And over the years, those two kind of, those two events, the, um, the girls and Mackay and Marilyn Woman, they, they kind of got tangled up in my head. And so, but I just carried this kind of sense of it with me for a long, a long time, you know, decades. Mm. And I was looking, I was, you know, looking for a, a nonfiction project to write about. And I, and something, I think there might've been something in the news about, a possible breakthrough in the Marilyn Wallman case, you know, there was going to be a backyard dug up in Mackay. Someone had come through with some information. And so I just thought, oh, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's, there's something there. So I began researching and just, you know, sitting in the State Library in Victoria, going through newspapers of the time. And I ended up going up to Mackay on a bit of a research trip and I made contact with the family and, and that ended up being that. So that was 2015. Mm. No, it was 2014. I think I ended up going to Mackay. But then in 2015, um, there was so a, a piece of bone had been found about 40 kilometres away from where Marilyn went missing a couple of years. Yeah. So and about a, and a couple of years after she went missing as well. And it wasn't until 2015 that that piece of bone they were able to extract mitochondrial DNA and match it to Marilyn's mother, who was still alive and who is still alive. And um, so they didn't have a funeral for her until 2015. Actually, that's right. So I went, I went up to Mackay in 2015 and it was only, so they'd only really just had a funeral for her after almost, I don't know, it was 46 years or something like that. Mm. And it was like for the family, it had happened four months ago, not, you know, 40 years ago. So anyway, they weren't prepared to participate in any kind of book. So I write, ended up writing, writing an essay that um, about that, about Marilyn's disappearance and the way it had kind of reverberated through my life, I suppose, and uh, which won the Thunderbolt Award. And I went on and I wrote something else, um, Wedderburn, which was a true crime story. But then it just, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about the times, like the seventies, like going through those newspapers, just um, there was so much going on. You know, there was the Vietnam, the Vietnam war was still going on. Jermaine Greer had just published the female eunuch. Gough Whitlam was about to be elected. You know, there was pro there'd been protests in the years previous against the Springbok rugby tour. And, and so just to, reading letters to the paper, I got a real sense of other things that were kind of stirring up people's emotions at the time, like the Little Red School book, which found it way, has found its way into the cane. And then on top of that, just things like advertisements for what people were wearing and, um, you know, columns about what to cook for dinner. <laughs> and it just really took me back to that time so kind of vividly. And I thought some of the things that I wanted to talk about, I kind of had more freedom to do in fiction. And so while the cane has a similar crime in a similar landscape that of Marilyn's disappearance, it's not Marilyn's story and it's not the story of her family. It kind of goes off in quite a different direction. But 
Does that answer your question? <laughs> it answers my question and then some. So it, it even prompts other questions to follow up on. So with, with so you mentioned, sorry, did you say that you, you didn't grow up in Farnham in Queensland? Is that, is that what I heard? No, I, yeah, I grew up in southeast Queensland. Right, right, right. Okay. So, so with the setting, first of all, is it pronounced koala? How's the, the, the township? Uh, yeah, I, I pronounce it koala. I mean, yeah, I've, koala. I've, yeah it's, a, it's a fictional town. Koala yeah. and Kali, 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 Kaliopi? Calliope. Calliope. Okay. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, describe, describe those settings there, Mary Rose, because I, I wonder, they, they seem very much the quintessential sort of what I would what I would think would be far northern Queensland sort of towns within the yeah. early 70s. Describe them a little bit first because then I wanted to get into some stuff talking about the, the eponymous king. Okay. So Qual is a small town, you know, a couple of hundred people hmm. that's surrounded by farms cane farms um you know it's a it's a kind of a you know there's there's a pub and a shop um you know there might be i mean there's there's a school so it's a small community and like a lot of um rural communities and sort of you know the one that i grew up in as well even though there's not a lot of people there there's still you know there's there's levels to that and, and, and cliques with, mm. within that community. So, um, and there are, you know, blow-ins. So, you know, people who've only lived there 10 years, so they're still blow-ins. And then there are people who have been there for, you know, for generations. Um, and it's, the landscape there is kind of a, like it, it's a man-made landscape. It's cane. So I didn't grow up in the cane fields, but, you know, I've, I've, I've been up there. I went to boarding school where, with kids whose families were cane, you know, were cane farmers and um, I had friends who lived in Mackay. So I had spent a little bit of time up there. Calliope is kind of the, or Calliope is kind of, you know, it's the bigger town 20 kilometres away. That's where the high school is. That's where the kids go to high school. They catch a bus into town every day. You know, there's... Um, you know, council offices. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a bigger town of some tens of thousands of people, but it's still, um, you know, got very much a regional feel. And in the seventies, um, you know, Joe Bajelke Peterson was premier in Queensland. You know, he was a very authoritarian figure. You know, he kind of described himself as being as a benevolent dictator and, you know, whether he was benevolent or not kind of depended on, you know which side of the political fence mm. you are on, and um, so and he kind of really encouraged this idea as Queenslanders as being a bit of a a bit of a people apart. And he, you know, he was kind of always you know threatening secession and that kind of nonsense. And um, but people kind of lapped it up, like you know most people. Queensland was a you know was a pretty conservative place, so. I, so that's the kind of places and it's, it's, yeah. So it's, it's deeply conservative and it's also a little bit, um, well, I, you know, it, it doesn't, it holds its secrets, I suppose. And it doesn't really like to dwell too much on what was there before the cane and before, um, you know, yeah, before the cane was there. Interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the sort of deeply conservative uh, outlook or sensibilities of the time, because I think like one facet of that is this sense of uh, uh, community, a community and solidarity. And I found that with the cane, it captured uh, that with uh, Koala and the, the townsfolk uh, rallying together when um, Janet first disappears. And I wondered if you talked a little bit about how they for even though they're still cliquey as you've mentioned and and there's they're still problematic particularly as burbling just kind of below the surface uh when there's this crisis that sort of unfolds the township seemingly every person um rallies together or does their bit for uh the family in terms of trying to help out with the, the search what do you think it is yeah. about this sort of uh this sort of community spirit that a community pride like such as koala prides itself on that uh people will then at the first sign of trouble try and help out well i think most you know i, I think most communities particularly small communities you know when mm. something like that happens you know they they do rally and you know food is kind of one of the first <laughs> 
one of you know one of the first things that people do in a crisis you know they try and feed the one you know the ones who are suffering and and i think also you know there's just um you know when something so terrible as like the disappearance of a child or a young girl you know the fear is real and deep and terrible and so there is this um you know overwhelming desire to get to the bottom of that and to find the perpetrator really quickly so i think um you know i think in, you know i think in any community when something like that happens people people will rally but in you know in, in small communities particularly too you know everyone does know everyone else and so i guess there's that kind of added fear that is the person who has done this terrible thing are they known to us you know have they you know have they you know been in my house have they you know touched my children have they you know is it someone who i drink with in the pub so um i think there's that kind of added um fear and kind of impetus to kind of okay let's solve this problem let's fix it it did, yeah, you literally just dovetailed onto my next sort of follow-up question to that, which is about the longer, obviously, uh, days, time goes on without Janet being recovered, the more, I guess, the community starts to look inward as to could it be one of us responsible for this? And there was a great line, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've butchered it, I'm not going to be able to read my writing, but it was talking about um, the not knowing uh, takes to your bullsack like with a cane knife or something, something like that, and it's the kind of... Uh, I'm going to ask you about that narrator anyway. I'm going to be sidetracked, but I think he remains just a nameless old bloke local. I, I don't, I don't ever remember a name being mentioned for that particular. He's character. Arthur. He's Arthur. Arthur. Okay, I, I thought it was deliberate. <laughs> I thought it was deliberate. Anyway, I'm completely sidetracked. But yeah, look, uh, that that was something that I wanted to talk about as well because how I thought, Mary Rose, that the way in which the trajectory goes with how the community changes, goes inward, its sensibilities change it's perceiving of losing its own innocence, all that sort of thing. But anyway, the, the point I was up to was to talk about, and then yeah, look, gazing inward and then starting to doubt one another. And these are the people that I guess that you, you think that you, that you know so well. And then that's the not knowing. The not knowing is yeah. mentioned in several different contexts in the game, but what do you reckon? Yeah. yeah. Well, just going back to that, that um, line about um, Arthur says, you know, that knowing that, Kind of as a community, mm. you know, I, I can't remember the exact words now either. But he's kind of reflecting on if it's one of us, mm. how could we have let this happen? Yeah. How could we have not been able to protect one of our own? And it's that feeling that he describes as being like, you know, someone's taken a, a cane knife to the ballsack of every man, kind of in the district. And you know, I think i do think that when a child goes missing there's something in a community you know i just think everyone must feel like there's because that you know that some level of responsibility lies with each person because it's a community you know mm. and if um how could they yeah and so i think that that issue that sense of why couldn't we see this why couldn't we protect our own i think that responsibility must um must be terrible or that mm. that feeling of responsibility whether or not it's um fair to lay that on yourself or anybody else i can imagine that it would be felt that way and then i guess the next natural uh stage of that is to shift from from questioning oneself to trying to blame anyone they sort of perceive as an outlier or an outcast kind of thing, which is sort of what happens without giving any sort of names away, i.e. fan of pants type uh, <laughs> reveals. But, I mean, over something that's kind of, I mean, I guess, you know, circulating that, um, what was it, the Little Red the little red Book? What, what was it called, sorry? It was called The Little Red School Book. The Little Red School Book. I mean, you know, when you look at it, I guess I'm looking at it from a 2022 lens. So, you know, I don't see it as really kind of a dissonant, sort of opinion, but I guess at the time within, you know, like you mentioned, ultra-conservative sort of 1970s um, uh, final Queensland, it would be pretty blasphemous, some of it. But, um, yeah, what do you think, Mary Rose? Like in terms of these sort of, sort of in small insular communities, how easy is it for someone to be perceived as an outcast and then kind of uh, blamed or quickly, quickly uh, determined to be probably the, the culprit? Yeah, look, I think it, I think it happens frequently mm. and 
and and and I will kind of stand up a little bit for small country towns being coming from one myself but that the little red school book was caused an enormous amount of fuss and not just in small rural communities like you know it was so it was um it was kind of a treatise written by these danish school teachers and it was aimed at you know school like teenagers and it was about kind of giving them agents it was trying to encourage them to take agency over their own lives and to recognize kind of their own power and so it you know it, it had a bit about you know sex and drugs and very mm. kind of um practical straightforward information about sex and drugs but it also talked about how to organize you know how to create like a you know a, a committee if you like and you know take a problem to you know your teachers or your parents or whatever and say hang on you know this is something that we you know feel should change or that we feel you know we need to have a say in so it was really encouraging young people to kind of you know take a bit of power back and and people were like because it was banned so you couldn't it was banned in australia so they couldn't import it but then they began um someone set up a little you know i forget who the publisher was but they started publishing it in the in the country and it was within australia and it was um it was banned in schools but you know copies copies got about so but i think outsiders are always um particularly in small country towns uh you, know, you kind of have to prove yourself and I, I suppose you know there in some places you know there is that kind of um it's a bit of a you know a truism or a saying that you know if if you don't have someone buried in the cemetery well then you're still an outsider sort of thing like you have to you, know, you have to have family die there to really belong and but i don't think that's um necessarily um just small communities like you know it happens you know it wasn't that long ago where um in Victoria, there was this perceived, you know, African gang problem, mm. which was completely confected. And yeah, so I think the fear of the outsider is something that infects a lot of us and a lot of our um, places, you know, the communities big and small. I guess it all stems from the, yeah, just a, just a lack of understanding or a misunderstanding and not wanting to know more uh, kind of then fueled by whisperings uh like you mentioned within the township i think that's how raylene kind of quickly becomes appointed the self-proclaimed authority on um all things janet because she yeah. she uh, her dad's the that's the the publican or whatever the proper term is for the for the pub so she's hearing everything but that's where i think a lot of the you know communication is bound to happen in any sort of pub uh, within australia it's kind of i guess the the watering hole literally where communications arise, but then that's when miscommunications kind of disseminated as well. And I wanted yeah. to talk a little bit about that Mary Rose, because I think that you really captured that too, in terms of uh, how this sort of wild speculation can then fuel all kinds of uh, problems or pernicious sort of issues with um, yeah, the demonization of kind of who we've, we've already touched on there. I don't think we actually mentioned their name, but how that sort of stuff can arise from purely from, from whisperings, whether it's just a small town sort of insular, or it's a bigger, broader yeah. community, i.e. what you've just touched on of the sort of uh, misconception of African gangs and stuff like that. Yeah. And I suppose, too, like, going back just to that idea of the 70s, mm. you know, there was a lot of, you know, social and cultural change, like, and people were alarmed. Like, I remember, <laughs> so I, I, I grew up in my far, on a farm and, you know, Gough Whitlam was, you know, going to become prime minister and i remember that my mother had this fear that he was going to nationalize the farms like there was this there was this real in pockets there was this real fear of communism and this yeah, real right. fear of change and so i think and i guess that was why even though you know i, I could have taken um you know set set this story in any you know decade or time period i really did want to have a look at that time of the of the 70s because there was this um yeah this this sense of everything being shake being shaken up mm. but, but 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 going back to raylene yeah so I, I really um you know i just i kind of love raylene i kind of fear for her and um um but 
but and also see her in part and and Essie as kind of the inheritors of you know the change that is that is going to come that is that is on the horizon and you know uh Raylene's a bit of a disruptor you know she's um she's around 14 she's a bit old still be in primary school but that's just because of you know the background with her father and moving around a lot but she's in that kind of in terms of her um peers at the primary school you know she's in this spot which is the pub where you know she hears everything she hears <clears throat> tall tales and true and she kind of feeds it back into the into her you know entourage in the primary school and um yeah, so she has a kind of a she has a she has a lot of power, Raylene, and she's also you know I think the adults around her, maybe not her father so much, but the adults around her they kind of you know view her with alarm. You know, she's mm. they see her as a as a danger to herself and to others, and you know perhaps she is a little bit. I like the way that there was. There, I swear there was one line that described that Essie didn't like the shadowy world that she created in terms of like the describing of this this sort of uh, all this information that she's absorbed and then passed on to Essie. Do, do you remember that line I'm talking about or, or not? Um, just, just it's okay. Not really. A few think, like... Yeah, like I think that for Essie, you know, Essie's you know she's not quite an adolescent she still mm. is a child but she's you know she's she's approaching adolescence and she can see you know Raylene has power because she has knowledge mm. and Essie doesn't have knowledge and and she's a bit afraid of knowing the things that Raylene knows but at the same time she's completely drawn to it but it leaves her you know I think it Yes, she, she's not comfortable with, with all the things that Raylene tells her, but at the same time, she can't, you know, it's, it's like, you know, dr you know, I don't know, eating too much chocolate cake or drinking too much of something. You just can't, you know, you can't stop, even though you know you're going to regret it. And I think that's a bit how she feels towards Raylene and the information that she, she gleans from her. You, talk, you talked about um, Essie and Raylene being sort of these perceived as inheritors of change. What about the bringers of change? And kind of one I felt was the character of Carmel, the detective um, brought in from Brizzy, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. kind of coming in at a time when the townsfolk were very much kind of viewing the police of a large amount of uh, sort of mistrust as to their abilities, given that they obviously hadn't delivered Janet as yet. And I think there was one of the, Connolly's that said something uh, was the effect of when she was at the pub. Uh, you said you said a woman to do a man's job. And I thought that was very much epitomising what uh, the the general consensus would have been at the time. And uh, yeah. hoping that that's a sensibility that kind of has changed quite a lot in the you know forty fifty odd years uh, plus that the book has been set. But tell me about Carmel as a character, particularly as her as her womanhood is pointed out uh, quite quickly into coming to town to investigate this. Yeah, well, Carmel, I saw this when I was when I was going through these, you know, the newspapers of the time, and I did come across this photograph of a of a woman, a, a police officer who'd been brought up from down south to help in the investigation of Marilyn Warman's disappearance, and she was kind of, you know, sitting beside this. It was like a notice board which had like a um, a diagram of where Marilyn had gone missing, and you know, pictures of cars and things like that. And she was kind of dressed in a safari suit. You know, she was in plain clothes, and she just had that kind of typical. I think they were called. It was it was like a lioness hairstyle. I think I remember it, kind of you know feathered and and she just. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of make have a character like that in the book because there was only um, it was only in kind of like the late sixties that they were uniformed women police officers hmm. in Queensland and you know that kind of um, you know I think one of the someone says to you know someone says about Carmel but in her hearing you know because of her there's a married man without mm -hmm. a job yeah, sort true. of thing. Yeah, yeah I'm really and, and and those kind of comments, you know, were were kind of par for the course. Like I was really, like someone had said to me, "Oh, like it couldn't have been, couldn't have been that bad back then." With the, and I was like, mm, "I don't think I've exaggerated it at all." No, actually. no, not at all, not at all, you not know, at all. I, I mean, I, you could have kept delving into that if you wanted to, but 
uh, obviously you wanted to keep focusing on the momentum of the, the story, but no, not at all, not at all. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, Carmel, you know, she's come, she's come north and I think she's just, you know, she's just uh, someone who has had to, you know, kind of dodge um, sexist bosses and, you know, claw every little bit of career advantage that she can and um has you know and she's kind of you know she's developed a bit of a thick bit of a thick skin and and a way of dealing of dealing with men who try and stand in her way or try and or who, or who just try and diminish her and mm. um she's not going to let that happen really i think you'd have to i can't imagine any other way of um of 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 being I can't imagine what it would be like to be to be a female detective or police officer in seventies. Never mind, just in Final Queensland, but uh, pr- probably anywhere around the world, I think would be would be pretty punishing uh, the entire time. So, no, I'm glad that you that you that you featured Carmel. We've talked a little bit about the different sort of reactions that they call the different stages that the community's reaction goes through. Um, there was one and another point that I kind of like that you mentioned, and I think that you've traced the, the history of it as well, but there was a mention about um, how Janet's disappearance, prolonged disappearance, probably met with some foul end, kind of signifies the loss of innocence for the region. And then that sort of overlooks the fact, well, that's very much for a lot of white colonial sort of lens because that's overlooking the fact that there's been, that the surrounds have been host to some pretty serious sort of, um, or suspected sort of massacres of First Nations people. And you mentioned, I think, in the acknowledgements, there was the Yorubari people, Yorubara people. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, Mary Rose, because it wasn't exactly like a, a, a main point of the the novel but i like that it was featured in it and i get the impression that's derived from something to do with your kind of extensive sort of research there yeah well um up near Mackay, there is a town called the leap Mm. and it's called the leap because there were some um there was a you know dispersals underway um and a young indigenous woman jumped off a cliff with her baby rather than be taken by the native police. And that's why that place is called The Leap. And so, and like, obviously, North Queensland is not the only place in Australia where terrible things have happened to First Nations people. And but and often, you know, when a crime like this does happen in a small town, and I remember it happened, and I remember a similar kind of rhetoric when, there was a terrible massacre in 1996 in at Port Arthur. You know, there was this, you know, people would say, oh, you know, Tasmania's innocence has been stolen. And, you know, and one of the things that occurred to me was Tasmania must be one of the least innocent places in Australia. Like it's, it's you know, Tasmania is built on dispersals, of Aboriginal people and massacre of Aboriginal people and of brutalization of convicts. Like <laughs> that's what that place is built on. It's not, it's not innocent. And, you know, though I think there'll be few places in Australia that could call themselves innocent, but this is, but this is a familiar thing that we tell ourselves when something like um, these terrible crimes happen. And I suppose I wanted you know, the cane itself, the you know, became kind of an avatar for the menace that might lurk in a landscape after repeated desecrations. And so um, in my kind of rendering of this story, you know, I had this idea that, the you know, so before the cane, you know, there was you know, lowland rainforests, there was animals, there was, um, you know, plants, you know, not to mention the people. So there's been this kind of series of desecrations, like the um, First Nations people dispersed or worse, um, habitat destroyed, animals driven off. And then, and then on top of that as well, South Sea Islander people brought here to work in the cane fields in terrible conditions and you know there's some 
debate about how willingly they came here, but I think it's pretty safe to say a fair proportion of them either came unwillingly or came with very little knowledge of what was going to happen to them once they got here. And and the cane, so the, for me, I guess the cane is like, you know, that's where the menace, that's where the menace lies. And, you know, it's kind of fanciful, I suppose, but um, that's what I wanted it to kind of represent just... I suppose, and, and, and we get a bit of that history through that character of Arthur, who is kind of acts like a bit of a Greek chorus in that he can he does, tell... Yes, very much so, yes. Yeah, and can kind of give us that broader view and history of Kuala and the people in it and, and what has happened before. You beat me to it, Mary Rose, because I was going to ask you about what the cane represents to you, because at one point... Um, I mean, there's there's some pretty pretty spooky uh, imagery that you conjure there um, with the cane man, and even at the end, without saying anything, that kind of freaked me out too. Beautifully realised and exquisitely detailed, but for cane, I mean, it's it's yeah, like you've you've mentioned. I mean, there's there's obviously this this bloody history that kind of uh, has preceded it, but then thereafter, I don't know, like how one would interpret it. Is it something that's you, you perceive it as its industry, it's, it's life-sustaining, I guess, for these communities and needs to be treated as such, but yet there's just, just the side of it alone. And mind you, I'm, I'm not from Queensland. I've only been there um, in Kansas like, a few times, but it's, to me it's redolent of like Stephen King sort of Americana, tall grass, just inherently creepy. I uh, <laughs> can't imagine going through it at night with a torch or lantern or something, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. it's the duality of that, I guess, is that, is that it's, you know, communities need it. Uh, it's founded upon that in many respects, but then there's also, it conceals so much. Even the opening of the, the novel, you know, the cane, I mean, Barbara wanted this sort of uh, cleansing fire. Why do you need a cleansing fire if not for thinking that or being quite sure that the cane uh, hides, in this case, I guess, Janet, but in, you know, many contexts, hides all sorts of secrets, I guess. I don't mm. know. What do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's such you know, it's so ubiquitous the mm. the sugar cane, and it's quite you know it it is quite beautiful, but it, it does have for me there was this kind of um, you know there's something like when you're talking about Stephen King, you know there's something gothic about North Queensland, you know, like the heat and. Uh, the humidity and like just that heaviness of that uh, of the atmosphere and the fact that it it is remote and and the way the cane just kind of carpets the landscape and goes on and on so there was something um yeah just from a purely kind of um oh i don't know gothic it was like you know it's kind of gothic or there's something gothic about it and i really and so I, I enjoyed kind of creating that um, that sense of menace and kind of hulk, you know, something hulking. I don't know. Yeah. So um, it was it was just it was convenient and also it was just it was kind of there for it was so it was kind of right to to write about it in that way. It's so right. It's like for the Australian yeah. skate, what I guess I don't know more sort of uh, for like English literature, like the Brontes and all that sort of stuff. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, yeah, they have, you know, the moors and, um, you know, old creepy houses. We've got, you know, feral animals and, um, you know, cane knives, I suppose. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, with the, with the way in which the story is told, I like that it blends different sort of perspectives, jumps from, you know, first, second person, um, sorry, first, third person. And I wondered if that was always the way in which you wrote it, because I think that you acknowledged in the acknowledgements, I must say, I don't know about you, but I, I very much always enjoy reading acknowledgements for books. They're always, they're always a wealth of information for, for my interviewing as well as just hearing about how a book has kind of come to be. But anyway, I digress. But I think that you mentioned, you thanked um, there was a writing group or some sort of um, uh, event that you, you, you had gone to or a course, something like that. I've got, I've got your... I've got oh, the masterclass. The masterclass. The masterclass. Um, the masterclass. Yeah. And, and I can only imagine, obviously, from, from that point A to this point B, how different the book must have changed in some capacities. But was the perspective always, like you've mentioned, you know, Arthur, this kind of Greek orator, but what about 
was it always told that way? And is that, is that the way it flowed through you, Mary Rose, when you were writing it? I had that kind of come to be. Yeah, there was always a lot of, <laughs> there were always a lot of different perspectives and, yeah. and kind of different, um, you know, there was that, and, and, and actually at that masterclass, there was, there was much more, a lot of Gothic, you know, imagery. And um, it wasn't so much in the masterclass. It was kind of my editor, Louise Thurtell, who was just kind of, she was able to say, look, you know, I love it, but, <laughs> you know, like, and there was, you know, th th there was, in its first kind of iteration, Oh, well, by the time it got to the publisher anyway, you know, there was, there was still like a lot of voices and um, that first person voice, it was actually kind of spread over several different people in the community. And Louise very widely, wisely said, let's just make that one voice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and also through Arthur, like a lot of the kind of gothic ex excesses I had in the beginning, I was able to kind of tame those down a bit by putting them, putting in, put, putting it in Arthur's words rather than having this kind of, um, uh, it was, yeah, it was a bit kind of purple, a bit kind of purple prose. So <laughs> it was, Louise really steered me in the right direction there, I think. But in terms of having the different voices and having, um, you know, that first person narrator and then the third person perspectives of different characters, that was just kind of an, that was just more intuitive. It was always, there was like a number of voices. But as I said, Louise just helped me winnow them down a little bit. Um, and I guess it allowed me to um, show how that disappearance of Janet affected all these different uh, people and kind of different, you know, levels of people in the community. Because I wanted, I didn't want her, dis her disappearance, Janet's disappearance, just to be this kind of, you know, inciting incident that, you know, took us on this journey towards the end. I wanted you know, the dread and the fear and the grief around an event like that to really resonate all through the book. And I guess having those different voices, we can see it in the children, like with Essie, you know, with Janet's school friends and boyfriend, um, you know, to Connie, Essie's mother, to the teachers and, you know, and and Carmel as, as the outsider as well, just to kind of, um, so I guess it gave me, it helped me do that. It was a way that I could show how it kind of, how that effect rippled out mm. throughout the community. That's a good way of putting it. It's interesting that you say it like that. And I'm also interested to hear, like you describe as to, to Arthur kind of being, um, how that kind of came to be, because I actually imagine him. I know I knew he was a human, obviously, but I kind of um kind of liked him <laughs> to the this sort of personification of the community itself. Yeah, like the spirit of the community talking about its goings on. Kind of reminded me of um Jeffrey Eugenides' uh, The Virgin Suicides. Kind of this sort of amorphous oh, okay. personification of of a community, sort of describing it. And it's interesting that you also mentioned that um that there was different sort of people that sort of had that um that first person um, sort of narrative before it kind of got paired back. Cause that, yeah, I would have loved to have had a dig and read that, um, that version of the draft because I, I don't know, for me, like no wonder it kind of had to get paired back a bit because then I guess you're kind of verging into like William Faulkner sort of as I lay dying <laughs> territory where you're like, who, who, who's, who's this? Like, you know, yeah. not, not, not that it's necessarily a bad thing. Like I could be here for it, but it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Louise definitely, you know, that's why yeah. you know, she's the other and you know everything like that but it's just yeah so lovely to hear in terms of how yeah. that kind of all came to be I guess yeah she was she was really and and also she was just very skillful in giving me confidence that the things um you know that that I wanted that that I felt were important she was able to say yes we can keep those in and but let's just let's just move it along a bit you know let's mm. um so yeah, no, she was. It was. It was really great to have that kind of, um, you know, guiding hand because it was my first novel. 
Hmm. And I did have a, you know, I wasn't because I, I'd always considered myself a nonfiction writer and just to have um, that kind of close edit and real engagement with it, have another person who was really engaged with it was just so valuable. And yeah, it was a great, it was a really great experience actually. Yeah, awesome. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of material then, like a lot of ammunition of these sort of uh, gothic imagery, Australian gothic imagery that you could then use for, for whatever comes down, come what may for the next novel, no, I guess? Maybe, yes, maybe. We'll see. <laughs> early days, early days, no pressure. But look, Meryl, last question. I always love to ask this question because I never get the same answer and it's always a fascinating sort of tell as to someone's journey getting to this point. But, yeah. you know, uh, primarily identified as a nonfiction writer. You talked to me about your debut novel, but I'd love to know if there was ever a period in your writing career, your journey thus far, where you, for whatever reason, almost considered kind of giving up and came very close to doing so, you kind of like hit a crossroads, as it were. And if you did have something like that happen, what was it that kind of got you to prevail and to pass through it? Uh, or if you if you haven't, then yeah, that's that's that in and of itself is a story as well. So, yeah, share what you feel comfortable sharing. Oh look, I feel like I think there's a point in every book where I just go. What am? Why am I bothering? What am I doing? I. Um, so yes, I have often thought about um, not writing, um, and I do. You know, I cause at the moment I'm trying. I'm you know working on another novel, and you know it's kind of something that writers say. You know that every book. You, you have to learn how to write every book, mm. you know, it's not, and it's, I just find that so true. So at the moment I'm deep in the weeds with um, a, a manuscript and just going, just, you know, tearing my hair out. So um, what gets me through? I look now I kind of real see, you know, I kind of feel like that fit that feeling of, I don't know how to do this it's part of the process mm. or it's part of my process and reaching that point um, is part of the process and that kind of um, frustration and, um, you know, despair might be a bit too strong a word, but this, that, you know, like <sighs> terrible feeling of what, you know, that I have all these words and none of them are good and mm. I don't know what to do about it. Um, so I think I, and I was reading something that George, you know, Saunders of, um, you know, Lincoln and the Bardo yeah, and, you know, he, and he talks about, um, you know, that, he, that thing of just re, I keep re-engaging with the, mans, with the manuscript and just, try you know <laughs> whittling away at it and I just have to feel like that's what I you know I just have to keep going back and you just have to keep you just have to keep working on it um <laughs> and try <laughs> and, and try not to think of it as oh, I don't know like as oh as that it's a, that it's that every manuscript at some point seems to be a summation of your worth <laughs> <laughs> not just as a writer but as a person <laughs> so and i try to uh remember that's not the case <laughs> that there are other things so but i think it's just um yeah so frequently i i reach that point i have done so several times and um but yes just trying to accept that's part of the process yep very well put in terms of that some feeling feeling like it's not just the summation of your of your your abilities but also your kind of like soul and contents of your character is a good way of putting it as well because my goodness mirrors i've definitely felt that as well so yeah it is all part of the process isn't it you're just going to kind of push out every single person i speak to you know and i've spoken to a lot and it's there's definitely um it's almost like it's a, a healthy uh thing at some points even though it doesn't feel it at the time to kind of be plagued by, you know, bouts of self-doubt and, you know, as long as they don't kind of verge into anything too detrimental, I guess it's yeah. it's just something that you just got to kind of write out and then, you know, the yeah. whole thing of you can't fix a blank page. So even if you're, what you're reading is 
I guess, in your eyeballs at that particular, you know, frame of mind, um, utter garbage, you just, I guess, just keep coming back to it. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. And that's, what, and that's what I always try and tell myself as well. Just write, just write anything. Mm. It doesn't just write, just put some words down. And because, yeah, it's, easy, it's easier to rewrite than to write. And you just have to, yeah, just put down some words. And even if they're terrible... Uh, and often, you know, I'll come like, you know, I'll, you know, grind out a couple of paragraphs and then the next day you come back and you go, oh, actually, it wasn't that bad. There's, there's, there's something in that sentence that maybe I can, you know, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of prepared to sift through a lot of, I don't know, hay to find the needle. I don't know what it is, but yeah. <laughs> Mary Rose, thank you so much for talking to me on the Railway Podcast tonight. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Samuel. Thank you very much. So, everyone, there you have it. That was me talking to Mary Rose Cuss-Kelly about her book, The Cane, her novel, The Cane. I can't recommend it enough. Be sure to get a copy of it hot in your little hands there. But uh, in the interim, yeah, huge thanks again to Mary Rose for talking to me on the program tonight about her work. Always enjoy talking to good writers about their craft. Uh, While I'm in the thanking mood, it's also a huge thanks to you for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program. You know what's going to happen with the next thing I'm going to say. I think you've listened to enough episodes. I'm assuming that you're a diehard fanatic and have listened to all of them. Uh, But if you haven't already, be sure to go back and listen to the ever-proliferating back catalogue of episodes. They're stretching out before you, tantalizingly offering you the uh, option to hear from uh, a many, great many disparate authors, uh, uniform only in their passion and their incredible talent. Uh, wow, I'm really selling it there. Yeah, that's, that's good. Let's, uh, yeah, good to know. But uh, yeah, please check out all the episodes if you haven't already. And while you're in that uh, listening to the Right Way podcast mood, be sure to give a cheeky follow on the Spotify if you're listening to it on the Spotify's as well as follow on SoundCloud if you haven't and if that's where you're listening to this on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and all others. Stay tuned. I have a lot more episodes coming up well into August time and then there might be a bit of a cheeky kind of half year not so half year later half year uh, a little bit of a break and then who knows what the future will hold uh, and then in the interim yeah thank you so much for the good vibes that are sent my way with my own sort of riderly pursuits always chip chipping away at that riderly craft of my own as well never say never when it comes to failure with that and all those other sort of messages that uh, sporting goods company would use, you know, keep going with all that sort of thing as I will in the interim. Uh, yeah, everyone, please have a lovely evening. Stay tuned. Got a lot more episodes coming up for you. But for now, I must bid you adieu.